Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Keep Left, the program of the Victorian Labor College. Bit of indiscipline in the studio here, people talking, but we've uh, cured that problem. Uh, in the studio is John Lafferty. Uh, good morning, everybody. And myself, Chris Gaffney. And John's friend Jan is here observing. All right, John, you're going to start off, aren't you? Yes, I was going to start off today, uh, Chris, by speaking a little bit about the 9-11 anniversary. Today, of course, is the 11th of September, and it's a very important date in history. It's not an Australian anniversary, but the events which took place 42 years ago do have resonance for this country. On September 11, 1973, a military coup backed by the CIA deposed the only declared Marxist government which had been elected to office. In 1970, Salvador Allende was elected president of the South American nation of Chile. Allende had been a government minister going all the way back to 1938, and he'd unsuccessfully run for president in 1952, 1958, and again in 1964. The 1970 presidential election was a very tight affair. Allende's Socialist Party won 36% of the vote, narrowly defeating Jorge Alessandre, who received 35%, and Radomiro Tomic, who received 28%. It was only Tomic's support that got Allende over the line. It is interesting that Allende, who is often described as a Marxist, although he got in through parliamentary means, was supported by Tomic, as Tomic was a founder of the Falange Nationale. The Falange, for those that don't know, were a fascist movement which ruled over many Spanish-speaking countries, including Spain itself, during the 20th century. Tomic's Christian Democrat Party actively put Allende into power in 1970, but by 1973 they would be behind a vote of no confidence in his leadership. The Chilean election took place at a time of heightened tension between the Cold War superpowers of the USA and the Soviet Union. US Senate papers actually reveal that in 1964, the CIA interfered substantially to ensure Allende was kept from power. More than half of the money poured into the Christian Democrat campaign actually came direct from the CIA. And in 1964, this indeed helped to ensure that a pro-capitalist US ally was kept in government. In 1970, the CIA yet again, uh, with their anti-Allende campaign, tried to portray the Socialist Party as a pro-Soviet front. Posters and pamphlets referred to Stalinist-style violence and repression if Allende's group won office. Indeed, the Soviet Union did support Salvador Allende in 1970, just as they supported many progressive causes throughout the world at, this, at that time. It doesn't sound like much today. It wasn't really that much in those days, near. But $400,000 was given by the KGB to the Chilean Socialist Party, and apparently, I've read anyway, $50,000 was given to Allende personally. By contrast, though, the US government gave the CIA $10 million to promote the right-wing candidates. Yuri Andropov would go on to become General Secretary of the Soviet Communist Party in the 1980s, but in 1970 he was the director of the KGB. 
He stated that the Russian secret police would, quote, carry out messages designed to promote the consolidation of Allende's victory and his election to the post of president of the country. For his part, U.S. President Richard Nixon was enraged that his secret police and his U.S. dollars couldn't buy the Chilean presidency as they had done in the past. From 1970 onwards, following the election, the CIA began to walk towards undoing the result of the election. Many actions took place secretly. One action, however, which uh, took place openly was taken by the Chilean parliament before the election was even run. Allende was forced to sign a statute of constitutional guarantees whereby he promised not to undermine the Chilean constitution. This led to the new president being very limited in his ability to change the country without undermining the Chilean constitution. Allende was in power for a period just short of three years. In that time, he nationalised industries, especially the copper industry, and uh, collectivised farms. In 1971, the Chilean Congress passed a resolution to nationalise copper mines without compensation for previous private owners. Governments in the 1960s had nationalised to a degree, but always with compensation. The 1971 move was celebrated as the Day of National Dignity, but it led to a stronger determination by the U.S. and the Chilean ruling class to oust Allende. Washington's initial response was to cut off U.S. credits and pour more money into CIA covert operations. In response, Allende gained commitments from the Soviet Union to invest more than $400 million in the country in the next six years. <laughs> See, the Chilean election cycle would run for six-year periods. It's quite a long time. $400 million is quite a substantial investment too. Strangely enough, even when the fascists were to take power in 1973, they kept the mines in state hands. The event which precipitated the end of the Allende administration was actually a strike, but a strike which was financially backed by the CIA to the tunes of millions and initiated by trucking company owners the Small to medium in businesses, yeah. They actually were promoting a strike. Yes, yes, I know. It's, it's I know. Strange, isn't it? So they don't mind strikes sometimes. Oh, well, yeah. to restore capitalism, <laughs> yeah, they're there. Okay, strike, they're see. okay. And solidarity. They love the solidarity trade union in Poland, too. Further political machinations which paralysed the country were staged to delegitimise the government. A so-called constitutional crisis. Surely that sounds familiar when you think back to the early 1970s. Well, two years later in Australia. Mm. A so-called constitutional crisis was created by vested interests. And Allende floated the idea of resolving it through a plebiscite. And we have um, echoes of that in Greece just mm-hmm, this mm-hmm, year. Mm-hmm, that worked well, I don't think. In this, Allende appears to have fallen victim to the idea that the capitalist class can ever be defeated uh, using the, ma- the, the mechanism of bourgeois parliamentary institutions. On September the 11th, 1973, the Chilean military staged a coup which toppled Allende. He was shot dead, possibly by his own hand using an AK-47 given to him by Fidel Castro, though this has been debated. I mean, it sounds very, you know, 
glamorous, not glamorous, but very I think, dramatic. Was, I think he was shot dead by the, uh, the army. Yeah, there was a Spanish, apparently a Spanish documentary which uh, was had, I haven't seen it or anything, but apparently had some pretty good evidence to suggest that he was, uh, he committed suicide. And he, in his speech... Well, only had, just before they shot him. I mean, what, six well, or one half dozen the other? Well, they would have shot him mm. if he <laughs> yeah, himself. Right. I suppose maybe he knew that, and that's why he shoots himself. Mm. But he was speaking in past tense, apparently, in the speech he was given. He said, we will rise up again, but this, at least from his point of view, was over. Mm. You know, this was it, you know. It's hard not to see, I believe, many similarities between Allende's story and that of the government of Gough Whitlam in Australia. Gough Whitlam's government also lasted for just under three years back in the 1970s, from 1972 to also 1975. Also had two elections in that three years. Yeah, but uh, there was no. Yeah, there was two elections. Now it's seventy-two election and the seventy-four Four election. Time, Labour yeah. won both of them. Mm. Yeah, but Allende, there was just uh, one election. I think there was a plebiscite. I think he had to go to the. Did polls. he have a plebiscite? Yes, yes, he did. Uh-huh. There was a. He did go to the polls in that three years, and he won on the second time, which is right. what actually prompted the coup. They thought they could defeat him electorally, and they couldn't. So that's when they decided on the coup. So the similarities with work very, even, very similar, even more. You know. And the U.S. ambassador mm. in each occasion was the same bloke. Yeah, who was a special a bloke called Green, who was a specialised in you know coups by Americans. Yeah. So there you go. I mean, there's there's an awful lot going mm. on, but um, both the leaders Allende and uh, Whitlam were popularly elected following a long period of pro-U.S. and pro-business governments. And in, in this country, the Liberals have been in power for 23 years. Both men were considered to be charismatic. Both presided over what were considered by the establishment, at least, to be radical governments, far too radical to ever be allowed in power. Both had programs of nationalising industry and benefiting the working class in areas of health and education. In the negative, though, I would say, both appeal to what is a, the popular idea, popular in the media idea, of Parliament and the court system being tools by which capitalism can be seriously challenged. It can be reformed, but it can't be overthrown. Both, through their inaction, prevented the necessary revolution which was required to move from a capitalist to a socialist economic model. Now, I do think there are similarities even with more recent affairs, and I don't mean Greece, I mean Australia, I think there were similarities which could be drawn with the Rod and the Gillard governments in recent years. Parliament, despite what we are led to believe, is not actually sacrosanct. A democratically elected leader can be removed by a military, by a foreign power, by an aggrieved ruling class, or even by members of the governing party itself. Rudd in 2010 and Gillard in 2013 had both been voted into the Australian Prime Ministership and yet were removed by their own party before even serving one term. Uh, just, uh, but you were saying it was a plebiscite. There wasn't an election. So I think I'm right there on saying he was You may be right once. that. I know yeah. he went to the polls twice. Now, whether it was yeah. in the form of election or... or yeah, I I'm, I'm not actually yeah, sure. I need to look into the referendum, mm. but thanks for that. But, um, yeah, so, I mean, Rod and Gillard won one election. And the hand and of the Americans was involved there too. They didn't certainly like- with putting Gillard in. Well, that's right. Yeah. They didn't like Rudd's uh, rapprochement with China. China and also with the, the mining interest plays yes. a big part. Yes. Of yes. Yes. I mean, he's right. actually saying that you've actually got to chip back into the community. Yeah, outrageous idea, isn't it? I know, <laughs> come on. It is true that, at, uh, as, as we do say, and we certainly agree on, it is true that at no time, uh, be it in the 1970s or more recently, Australia has actually been subjected to actual fascism, you know, which did 
take power in Chile, and mm. that's much more severe than what we ever see. Uh, not to say it couldn't happen, though. Yeah, yeah, could of course, happen. Of course it could happen. However, I believe we have much to learn from the story of Salvador Allende's rise and fall. I think the one lesson we can come out here is that you can't achieve socialism, that is ruled by the working class, through Parliament. No. The parliamentary road, Allende's example, kill that off. Yeah. Because if the bourgeoisie feel their interests are threatened, they will do away with democracy like that. It means Capitalism nothing. Capitalism trumps democracy. Absolutely every time. Every time. Well, over the last few days, you would have, people have been shocked by the horrific images of refugees drowning in the Mediterranean and uh, migrants suffering in dozens in uh, tra- uh, traffickers' trucks. Millions were shocked by scenes of exhausted families with small children confronting barbed wire fences and people being herded into detention camps where they were for days without food or sanitation. People across Europe were outraged when Hungarian police actually attacked defenceless asylum battens with uh, seekers with batten stun grenades and tear gas. Last week it emerged that the Czech authorities were stamping registration numbers on refugees' forearms, recalling methods used by the Nazis. Mm. This unleashed a storm of protests. Solidarity committees rose up in dozens in cities and towns to collect f- f- food, clothing, medicine, toiletry, toys and other items. For example, an unemployed teacher who called on colleagues via Facebook to organise German language courses, was overwhelmed by the number of volunteers who came forward. 20,000 refugees arrived in Munich last week. When they disembarked, they were welcomed by committees formed to distribute water, lunches and toys and offer transitional uh, translation assistance and other support. Now, these events show the chasm that separates the sentiments of broad masses of people from the reactionary obsessions driving state policy and official public opinion. And that's true in Australia. Most Australians, except the complete idiots, have some sympathy for the refugees and want to help them further, but not our governments. Even in this Abbott-type people all over the place, right-wing professors such as Heinrich Munker of Berlin's university insisted that the population was terrified of refugees. He said he called for the ditching of morally no-go precepts. In other words, kick them out. Precepts? Well, ideas formed beforehand. Yeah. Over the past years, the German political establishment has worked relentlessly to convince people that the horrors of World War II and Nazism should be forgotten. The president has joined other top officials, insisting that Jenny, Germany had to get over its past, abandon its post-World War II policy of military restraint, and resume its place as a global power with military force at its disposal. The outpouring of public support for the refugees shows how little support this particular vile campaign has generated amongst working masses. Angela Merkel, the German Chancellor, in a tactical adaptation to this mood, spoke of a culture of welcome in Germany. This was a manoeuvre, of course. The German government is in fact working feverishly to restrict the right of asylum seekers and to deport the majority of refugees as soon as possible. Aren't the Germans taking in 800,000? Uh, That's I, what I read. I, well, I'm not sure of the figure. Which is a huge figure. It is a huge figure, but this is, uh, it's only going to be a small proportion of the number of refugees that are going to arrive. Uh, the Hungarian Prime Minister spoke for all the governments in Europe when he said in Brussels like Friday, if we give the refugees the impression they are welcome, it will be a moral defeat. End of quote. But, mm. 
It's, uh, it's necessary, of course, for people to go beyond giving sympathy to the refugees to trans such, transform such elementary feelings of solidarity into a politically conscious struggle. How is it to explain that 25 years after the end of the fall of communism and the fall of the Berlin Wall, walls and fences are being erected across Europe, secured by barbed war and guard dogs? (coughs) Pardon me, after the dissolution of the Soviet Union in 1992, the major capitalist powers led by the American elite felt liberated from the constraints placed on them by the existence of the USSR. You remember the so-called balance of terror? They've got a bomb, we've got a bomb. One of the central conclusions they drew was the belief that they could now, once Russia was out of the picture, they could expand the use of military violence to achieve their aims. Their first victims were the energy-rich regions of the Middle East and Central Asia. And in the mid-90s, they made it clear that they were going to move into, this is after the fall of communism, they made it clear that they were going to move into the Middle East because there was now no military power on earth that could actually stop them. The vacuum. Decades the has not been there as a vacuum. Decades of war in Afghanistan and Iraq under the pretext of a war on terror ruined these countries and led to the deaths of hundreds of thousands of men, women and children. This was followed by the US-NATO war for regime change in Libya which threw the, overthrew the governments of Gaddafi and transformed the country into a failed state, torn, a, torn apart by constant fighting between rival militias. Now, like in Assad in Syria, uh, Gaddafi in Libya, these weren't nice people, or even Saddam in Iraq. They weren't nice people. And mm. yet, for example, in Iraq, mm. Iraq had the highest education right for girls in the Middle East, and the best medical services in the Middle East. Even a lot of right All wing, of which has been smashed Even up. a lot of right-wing commentators are now sort of saying that, yeah, of course it wasn't paradise on earth, but under Saddam Hussein, things were a lot better well, than the average Iraqis. The Iraqis are saying that. Are now. Then came the, civil, the Syrian war, set in motion, armed and financed by the United States and its regional allies, with the aim of flowing another, no doubt bastard, President Bashar al-Assad, and installing a pro-Western puppet regime in Damascus. And the result, of course, has been to wreck the country. Mm. This constant threat of death and destruction is driving hundreds of thousands of people to undertake the desperate flight to Europe. And it's the result of the crimes of imperialism. Imperialism, Western imperialism, is responsible for the refugee crisis well, at the war moment. war creates refugees, and if we look at all the refugees that have been coming to this country, you can go right back to the late 1940s, early 1950s. You know, people were being displaced from South and Eastern Europe, Italy, Greece, Yugoslavia. Well, as a result people of the Vietnam War, up. for example. The Vietnam mm. War in the 1970s, Lebanon in the 1980s, yes. the Horn of Africa and Iraq and Afghanistan. War leads to refugees. Mm. The rise of the terrorist militias, ISIS... And the wars in Iraq and Syria are a direct consequence of the destruction of Iraq by the US and the support given to ISIS and other Islamic militants by the West. The refugee crisis exploded any notion that the imperialist powers can unleash savage violence in the Middle East without suffering the consequences. The world is coming face with the global interconnectedness of modern society. What is being revealed is the totally rationality of an international capitalist order that divides the world into nation-states of rich and poor countries. The defence of the refugee regimes 
requires a political struggle against imperialism and war. Well, is the time of nation states coming to an end? Well, I think it is. I think it is. I mean, some people argue that the role of the nation state has declined mm. and the corporations, which are now, of course, international, are ruling the roost. They're the ones that rule. And you look at some, you know, you look at (coughs) Europe. I mean, Europe is full of these very small nation states and creating more small nation states. That's right. Which are that much easier to be knocked off by the corporations. Yeah. Much easier. Now, uh, just the other little thing in the time we've got is the Labour government in Victoria has denounced badly paid rail workers in Melbourne for taking even a limited industrial action last Thursday, Friday and Saturday over the terms of a new enterprise agreement. And it was interesting, before even the details of this particular dispute came out, the Labor government was in there defending the privatised uh, metro... Yarra tram, Yarra tr- metro trams. Yeah, just mm. defending the private uh, proprietors mm. of our public as a transport system. Amid a barrage of corporate media denunciations mm. of the rail workers... The Andrews government and Metro Trains unsuccessfully took last-minute action in the federal government's Fair Work Commission, what it is, NOMA, to ban the industrial action. In the hearing, the Labor government branded the strikers, the strikes and the strike, as irresponsible, not not the management. They, They were just fine, and claimed that it would endanger the safety of Melbourne residents. And, of course, that was the fault of the strikers. In reality, the Andrew government's joint actions with Metro Trams against the public workers is consistent with Labor's ongoing assault on the working class, which has been reinforced by this particular union at every turn. It's an ALP union. Which is an ALP union? The uh, rail transport. The ones who are having the strike. Yep, 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 yep. yep. Victorian public transport was first privatised by the Kennett Liberal government in Mm -hmm. 1999. Mm -hmm. In 2003, when National Express handed back the private franchise, the union assisted the Brax Labor government to reprivatise the network at the expense of workers' jobs and conditions. In the current enterprise agreement negotiations with Metro Trams, the unions proposed a 19% wage rise over four years, which is barely enough to match inflation. Metro Trams, who we might note's profits, have leapt by 45% in the last three years and offers just 17% over the same period. But that's not the problem, because it's only 2, 2% differently. It's all the trade-offs they want. They want cuts in overtime penalty rates. <coughs> Pardon me. They want an extension of the working day to help the government and the company introduce a 24-hour services on the weekends. The implications are far-reaching. Workers could be required to start and finish at different distant places and then have to return to the state's starting point in their own time. Mm. They could be ordered to report for a week of work with as little as 11 hours' notice. Fatigue management would be eliminated. Metro Trains wanted wanted to introduce repetitive running, that is, removing restrictions on the number of times a train driver can travel up and down the same line. And when they do that, more accidents happen. Hmm. Because I, I, I suppose... I suppose they get very... They get blasé like, and... Yeah, bored and... The Metro trains attack on wages and work conditions, like the demands being made by the Yarra trams, is part of a generalised assault by big business and governments, Liberal and Labour and like, on the entire working class. Actually, in fact, the train, bus and train workers 
should establish genuine rank-and-file committees independently of the unions, which, when they become ALP leadership, are very unreliable fighters for workers' interests. Mm. And they should turn to other sections of workers facing similar attacks, wharfies, workers in the steel, car and other industries. Labor's efforts to outlaw any strike action make clear that this involves a political fight not just against the transport companies, but the entire Labor apparatus. What is required is a diametrically opposed political perspective, a socialist one. Well, we're certainly not going to get that from the ALP. So this union, which is, um, I mean, there's the same union with uh, Yarra Trams and with Metro Trains. The same union covers both. I think so, yeah. Yeah, and and it's the Labour Party affiliated. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So who's taking the industrial action? They're, well, they're the authorized. union is, but they're doing it under extreme pressure from the rank and file. Really? Well, because the wages are low. Yeah. The wages are they haven't had a rise for years. They yeah. see the companies are making 45 they Profits increased 45% over three years, so yeah. the, the workers are enraged. And the union, if it takes no notices, they'll find their own leadership defeated. So is, they will take a part action to satisfy some of the rank and file so they can get away with doing collaborating with the government. This is the first that I know of major industrial action under the term of this Andrews uh, Labour government. It is, yes. But uh, Labour government. And so it just seems like unusual to me. I do know, I I believe that going back when it comes to tramways disputes, if you go back to maybe the 90s or something Mm. like that, they were against... A Labour government, and I thought there was some tension actually between the two. Well, the, there is, there... the periodically is from the rank and file. Yeah, because the Labour government acts like a Liberal government does when it comes yeah. to a strike. I mean, with that, these people didn't even Andrews and Company in the, the transport me didn't hesitate. They yeah. came out for the company it's on not day transport. one. It's private transport. I well, mean, it's private public transport, privately right. owned public exactly. transport. Exactly. You know? It's not uh, private. Getting back to the refugees, I mean, like some people have said, the, the Germans apparently are taking 800,000, which mm-hmm. is a huge number. I mean, if that was in Australian terms per head of population, that would be about 200,000. Oh, look, it's a, it's a, it's know, a, so great, it's a great gesture. It's a, but she's playing politics and will continue to play. They don't want the refugees. Yeah, but it's a huge number. I mean, oh, you know, yes. infrastructure can only take so much. I mean, we, you know, we look at Melbourne in the past, well, the, the year, whatever, I think it might have been the calendar year 2014, the population increased 100,000. Mm. And, you know, I mean, this affects... The infrastructure isn't always necessarily yes, there yes, to, yes. to take that, you know. But uh, some people have been saying that a lot of the rich Arab Gulf states, and actually the US isn't taking anyone, but a lot of the rich Arab Gulf states. They're not taking, you're they're quite not right. taking anyone. You're quite right. And the thing is that an awful lot of these places like Saudi Arabia, Kuwait and the like, they rely on foreign labour. Very few of their own nationals actually do a lot of the and you jobs, And US you know. financing. All these Arab states that you mentioned, the right-wing Arab states, you're mm. right. Yeah. They have not taken a single person. And the United States who I think bears criminal responsibility for the Middle They're East, not taking anyone. is not taking anybody. But, I mean, you think that they might I suppose look... there's two half the refugees to get to the United States. But the, 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 some of these countries, and possibly Germany, mm. might look at these people as a source of cheap labour, oh. you know, which isn't good necessarily for a lot of the working class in those countries. No, no, no. But, but I mean, they don't seem to be looking at that like that, like they are rich Arab Gulf states. I mean, even George W. Bush, right back in his time, he was for opening up the border with Mexico. Because he wanted cheap labour coming mm, into his mm, home mm, state, mm. Texas, primarily. Well, they stopped that when they managed to beat the American working class wages so low that the, mer- need the, the car companies moved from Mexico, where they were enjoying cheap labour, back, back to the United States because really? it was cheaper. 
Uh, than Mexico. No, <laughs> no, no that's really? true. That's true. That's the cow companies have been relocating uh, to America because, well, as I, I was actually thinking of car companies when I was looking at Germany because I mean, what is Germany's great strength? It's cars. You look out there on the roads, right, especially yes. the, you know the upper end yeah, of the, yeah, sure, the car sure. market. It's the Mercedes, Volkswagen, BMW, Audi, and they're all German. And I was thinking, ah, oh, maybe the car companies are behind a lot of this. Wanting cheap labour. Well, but me, I'm being too cynical. Well, I'm, I, I don't know. You're you probably not, but I can't, I can't actually give her a verdict. Yeah. The, the other little thing, too, is a curious case of a woman in Kentucky whose job is to register marriages. Mm. And she is refusing to do it because she's Celebrate. a born-again born again Christian mm. and she, does, she refuses to register gay marriage, despite mm. it being the law mm. and despite her private religious beliefs having zero to do with the law, mm. which says two individuals can get married, male, female, whatever. But she's refusing to register because he's the register of the county. And, uh, oh, she's a, so she's a state registrar. She's, she's a state. She's um, elected as a registrar, and her yeah, job is to register. To, no, well, she's not, not a, a celebrant. She's not, she she has, all she has to do is to register them yeah. in the law to make sure that... You know, you, you're staff. married. Well, that's right. Yeah. But she's refusing to do it mm. because of her private views. Now, normally wouldn't one wouldn't mention the fact that this same holy born-against Christian has mm. had three husbands and three children by three different fathers. She has. Oh, yes. Now, I wouldn't give a bugger about no, that. No, you, you look to me to be quite outraged by that. Actually. I'm not outra- I'm outraged by the hypocrisy <laughs> yeah, of this okay. woman. He's imposing this holier-than-thou standard, and yet her life would offend any deep Christian, you would imagine, Mm. someone who's had, you know, endless... I think she's had four husbands, and three of them... She's only had one in the past two minutes. She had three before. No, I think she had four. I think she's got four husbands, but I know she's definitely got three children. She'll be on her way to a But either way, normally you would think that's utterly utterly irrelevant, except that this woman is standing that she's doing... Someone said yeah, by the, the gay when gays confronted her and said, "Why won't you register um, our marriage? It's according to the law." She said, "I obey God's." But laws. hang on a second, she's Sick. born again, so maybe she became born again after the fourth husband. Well, she now, probably she did. In those days, she was up, <laughs> you know, and now she's. Don't worry, she's in the right. Well, track. she. I'm no doubt she's like yeah. a nun now. <laughs> I know that she's a celibate nun, but yeah. well, she's not a celibate. I was thinking she was a celibate. She's not a celibate. She actually registers them. So I mean, she's basically a rubber stamp. She's a rubber stamp. So if the if the state says these people are, can be married, yeah, it's really her job just to say, yep. That's Bob, exactly. Do you, Bob, do you take it's not, Mary it's or not Bob, a do job. You take Jack? It's not a job in which she has given any discretion at no. all. <laughs> it's like, you, know, you sign here, sign here. And, but but she, she's doing it. In, and, and, of course, the, the six Republican candidates are yeah. rushing to her. And uh, I saw an article about d- defending this. She's I, running on the ticket. Maybe. No, no. She's, <laughs> there was a big article defending her. And... There was all these people, you know, and when you go onto Facebook, there's people make comments, all this. It was studied with God this, God that, God the rest, in other words. In other words, it's the religious right, a backswell by the religious right trying to defy the law. And, you know, can maybe win some votes. But, you know, she's getting, as Andy Warhol said, her 15 minutes of fame. Especially in America, it's very important. Well, yes, I suppose so. I suppose so. And, yes, she's an appalling woman. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.